Hi, my name is Amy Morgan, the host of the Mindfulness Academy podcast. And today I am so happy to introduce you to Robert Ola Miller. Robert, thank you for joining us. Good to be here, Amy. Thank you. Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of an introduction. You have quite a resume. Robert Ola Miller is a lifelong Hoosier and retired criminal justice professional. His 32 plus year career with Indiana Department of Correction included work as a prison counselor, parole officer, and state-level community corrections administrator. He served as a deputy commissioner during his final 11 years with IDOC. Rob has experience with the Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety as a facilitator of mindfulness-based wellness and resiliency. He has co-hosted a weekly CMPS-sponsored mindfulness-based wellness video call for first responders since April of 2020. What an interesting time and what an interesting man. Thank you for joining us. Well, we're going to hop right in to our conversation and I'm really looking forward to it. I was thinking back about when we had met and how this path from then to now, uh, how it's all come together. So I believe it was somewhere around 2008 or nine, right around in there um, when we met I had been working at a, a large uh, marketing firm downtown Indianapolis and met your son and he introduced me to you. And that was about the time when your wife? Yes, uh, just his mother Linda passed away in March of, of that year. And uh, frankly, I sometimes think, I wish I had known a lot more about mindfulness and had a chance to practice it and understand the impacts of trauma on people's lives, obviously all of us go through grief and loss. Uh, however, it was a challenging time. Uh, you know, for all concerned, everybody who knew knew Linda and uh, obviously all the kids and friends and relatives. So, uh, so thank you for mentioning that. And uh, yeah, it was it was a, a challenging time. And uh, I think part of the one of life's stressors that is is grief and loss. And uh, there are so many other events that happen in our lives. Just, just living day to day uh, creates stress. You know, we can't we, we can't eliminate stress from our lives. However, we can become more skillful in managing it with you know with uh, certain knowledge and and practices and skills that uh, such as mindfulness brings us. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. And just to give folks a snapshot of what that that stressful time was like for you. So you you were the caretaker for yes. for your wife, and she she had. Cancer. She had she had cancer, which was actually uh, stage four when she found out, and uh, she was able to live and a reasonably good quality of life for a number of months. Uh, and uh, you know, in those kind of circumstances, you clearly need all the support you can get. Family was very supportive. However, I didn't really understand uh, really the trauma that I was experiencing and some of the things that were happening to me until it was all in the uh, rearview mirror, so to speak. Uh, but I think it's part of the cumulative uh, trauma and really suffering of life. And uh, I think what mindfulness can do for us is it can give us chances to uh, basically surf through the pain and not suffer as much because pain is part of life, but suffering is, can be minimized with, you know, with the right kind of skills and, and practices. Uh, Certainly, there's all kinds of practices that, that help with that. I think this is a fascinating discussion around pain and suffering. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that before we move on, because I don't, I don't want to lose that part, because there's pain in, for instance, your wife suffering from um, cancer and, and the toll that it takes on you and your family to support her during that difficult time. But then what, what is different between pain and suffering. Well, I, I think one of the ways to uh, put that in a perspective is to think about the fact that uh, pain doesn't necessarily have to produce great trauma, but pain is part of life, and if and many times we feel that pain and that trauma in our bodies, so. Uh, that's what makes some of the practices of, of mindfulness, including things like body scan, uh, mindfulness of body, really, really helpful to actually be able to pinpoint what's going on in your body in the moment, and at the same time recognizing that all thoughts, all emotions, 
all moments, happy, neutral, pleasant, unpleasant, whatever they be, they all pass. And, and I think that's part of the great realization is that there are days where you don't understand or can't, many of us might not feel like we can even get through the next hour, 24 hours, whatever, depending on the, the size and type of the challenge. Uh, however, change is inevitable and, and even, even good things that happen in our life that we really like to hang on to, uh, we sometimes fail to grasp them and really uh, savor them, as Rick Hansen talks about with his savor the good practices, uh, because we uh, really have this negativity bias, and so it's much easier for the negativity to all sort of be the first uh, default of our of our behavior and of our thinking and of our emotions, and and all that all goes back, of course, to, to evolution. You know, you, I think you and I talked about before the the lizard brain and the you know the development over to, over time. Uh, I think Rick Hansen talks about the nervous system of living beings has actually been evolving for six million lifetimes, uh, and so it's a it's a process of evolution that certainly makes us different than other animals but also provides us with challenges that some of the other animals uh, don't exhibit. Some of the other animals like your, your, you know, your dog or your cat, they get startled by fireworks, which as I mentioned last night, we had a dog in the house that was very upset by the fireworks. Uh, they know how to shake it off and go right back to their nap. You know, We as human beings are not as good at shaking off uh, negative events or, or startling events or whatever. So. That's one of the thing, reasons it makes uh, mindfulness and practicing mindfulness uh, just a very valuable practice for helping us surf the life uh, that we have and, and in some helping professions or whatever, help others surf it as well. So I hear the difference between pain and suffering is pain is acknowledging there is pain here. For instance, my wife is suffering from cancer. However, the suffering for you, it could be potentially obsessing about it, um, maybe worrying about what could have been different in the past or what's happening uh, or what might happen in the future and, and just trying to kind of get yourself worked up over things that you just can't control, right? Exactly. Uh, the things that happen to our human minds because of our tendency to ruminate thinking about the past, whether it's regrets or should have done it this way or should have done it that way or shouldn't have forgotten so-and-so's birthday or we, we, you know, and I want to make sure this is clear what I'm saying, we should all over ourselves, you know. We, we, we tend to put should as something that we constantly throw at ourselves and, and have potentially have regrets about or, and so generally rumination, especially without awareness of what's going on, is it can be very, destructive and unhelpful and certainly the fear as you indicated uh, not knowing what that's part of suffering not knowing what tomorrow brings not not knowing if you'll be uh, ready for tomorrow's challenges or not knowing what the outcome of, of any kind of health challenge or whatever else uh, so yes it's it, it helps us mindfulness helps us stay in the moment and that takes practice. But once you have that awareness and the tool set that mindfulness gives you, uh, you always have the capacity to at least catch yourself and realize that, you know, this moment will pass and that if I just take a minute, observe what's going on in my body, uh, take a breath, I can then proceed with whatever comes next. In fact, that's a practice, a very practical practice that people could uh, Google, you know, the stop practice. Uh, Rhonda McGee is one of the people who does a nice job with that online, uh, a law professor from, from San Francisco. But it's stop, stop is one of those practices that is just very helpful because if you have an awareness that you're feeling overwhelmed, an awareness that things are just in the moment feeling out of control, then just taking and doing that stop practice even for a minute or two minutes can totally redirect your day. And, and, that's, and stop is just one of many practices associated with mindfulness and 
you know, if we were going to practice all the ones that I think are super valuable, we this podcast would be, you know, two or three, four hours easily uh, because there's that many and the, and the variations that come with the practices as well. That's wonderful. I going back to a, a part of what you just mentioned. Um, you talked about being in the moment and savoring what's going on. I think there might be some misconception that mindfulness is about kind of, you know, sticking your face right in front of pain and, and just learning to accept it. And I, I think there's a lot to be said for that, but I think there's a lot to be said on the flip side for showing up for those beautiful moments, because I, I like to consider uh, the present moment has the nutrients I need for my life and my well being, And if I'm not present for that, I'm starving myself. And so that kind of helps me come back to the present moment by thinking, be here for the nutrients. They're Absolute, here for you. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, it brings to mind some research that was done by some Harvard researchers. I can't honestly can't remember their name. But if you Google the, the whole thing of uh, Harvard researchers and, and uh, rumination or, you know, whatever, uh, they revealed from their research that we as human beings, the average human being spends 47% of our time either ruminating, thinking about the past, regrets and all that kind of thing, or anxiety and stress, thinking about fearing the future. And that leaves us 53% of our lived moments of our moments of life that we are sort of missing out on. It's almost like we could almost double our lifespan in, in, in respect if we could learn to be mindful all the time, which of course is not a not a human possibility. Our, we have wandering minds and our minds are gonna wander, that's what they do, and that's what makes mindfulness a challenging practice. Uh, but it's, it's just such a uh, wonderful set of tools to help us cope with whatever comes. And uh, you know, obviously to teach children, I'm sure that uh, with what you do, you're very much mindful of, of your children's uh, emotional needs and, and giving them little bite-sized doses, age appropriate, of, of what mindfulness skills are like. Yes, we, we do practice some of those and I have been overjoyed by my children coming home um, and even in their schools, they are, they're learning little bite-size mindfulness tricks. I think it's called the starfish breathing, the in and out with the fingers. It's just beautiful. Um, and in fact, I've even recently used it. So the kids and I, we teach each other and that's a beautiful, a beautiful thing. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your, your journey to mindfulness. And so from 2008 or nine, when we had first met, um, I think we lost touch for a little while and, um, and then in 2020, you started uh, with the uh, the Center for Mindfulness and the the video um, trainings for first responders. Um, and I think around that time we started reconnecting. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it was around that time. In fact, I I think that because we're Facebook friends, uh, that I became aware of what you were doing with with the Chaos Antidote book, and uh, really felt a sense of of pride and happiness that you were able to do that because it's it's something that I aspire to do, be, a, be an author of a of a real book someday, you know. Uh, so I, I really appreciate your effort and the fact that the more people we have out spreading the word and sort of tweaking it for different audiences uh, because I don't know that what we do on Wednesday night for first responders would resonate with people in other fields. So it's it's always good to have the message tailored for certain audiences uh, or just generally, I mean, it's possible to have practices and teachings that are just very general. However, sometimes to really connect with someone's sense of purpose and who they are, uh, talking about how it relates to their field, to their challenges, to their life, uh, motivates them and gives, gives the practices and everything a sense of, of uh, validity and integrity that uh, that are really helpful. I, that's one of the reasons I love this, the, uh, the programs of the Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety because they've been proven to work with law enforcement agencies, uh, correctional agencies in Canada and about six states of the United States, including Indiana. So uh, 
yeah, I, I just think that the more, I hate to say, well, I, I, don't, I don't know what exactly what term to use. I hate to talk about it in terms of teachers necessarily because I think as we facilitate mindfulness, it's, it's a partnership of equality. It's, you know, there's none of this kind of, you know, well, I'm the professor and you're the lowly insufficient students and, you know, I will open your mind and I will pour knowledge in. Or, you know, we know it's not that way, so I really like the term facilitator. And I, I think it's a very valuable role to have more and more facilitators and people that are messengers and advocates like yourself. When it comes to the actual practices and, and, and uh, instruction, sometimes it, it's helpful to tailor it for the, for the audience or the group. Uh, for instance, like attorneys and judges might benefit from a totally different uh, perspective, uh, the same tools but packaged differently. I'm not, you know, I'm not an attorney, I'm not a lawyer, uh, but for judges and lawyers, I mean, they have stressful careers as well. Uh, so absolutely yeah and I'm I'm coming at mindfulness from the perspective of uh, a business owner a wife a mom you know daughter daughter-in-law you know wearing a lot of hats as as we do and um, I have to say in the timing of things as we kind of start talking about your your journey to mindfulness um, my journey was one in which I was able to learn mindfulness during difficult time in the world <laughs> right before um, COVID hit and I have to say that it helped immensely my mental health during that time um, and the more and more I spoke with folks the more and more I realized I wanted to help folks learn uh, more about mindfulness because I, it has been such an invaluable tool for my life and so um, thank you for sharing that part I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell us um, about your your mindfulness journey you said you know you, you wish you would have had a little bit more of that during the time that um, more of that training when your wife was going through um, her sickness but I'm, I'm wondering so so that happened she passed in 08 March of 08 you yes, said March and then and then what happened after that between then well and I actually might want to jump back a little bit to my first I guess aha moment about certain practices of meditation and although I wasn't really that familiar with the term mindfulness and, and wouldn't have fully understood it at the time, but uh, it goes clear back to a Notre Dame reunion I went to in 2002, and there was a, a gentleman presenting named Justin O'Brien, who was a PhD, and he had practices he was teaching that involved yoga, uh, meditation, and uh, breathing exercises that really resonated with me. and. Uh, it was a really good time for me to, to learn those particular skills because by that time in 2002, I was a uh, deputy commissioner with the State Department of Correction during a very uh, challenging time as far as changes in the laws and the way that juveniles uh, were handled, the way that community corrections in Indiana was being delivered. And I had moments where I was, you know, my job was to present to an entire auditorium of people in the government center uh, policies that were not necessarily, you know, ones I came up with. They were something the legislature came up with, but were perhaps very unpopular with, with the audience, which would be made up of probation officers, sheriffs, county commissioners, people that were going to be impacted by these changes. And I realized that I had a real issue with, with anxiety, you know, performance anxiety. So I learned from Dr. O'Brien the importance of, of the uh, basically alternate breathing and learned that that was a tool I could use to to kind of uh, counter my my performance anxiety and and what is that you want to talk talk what, to the guests about what the, alternate breathing is? the alternate breathing basically is recognizing that you know we have a breathing system that impacts both sides of our brain and that by alternating the breath consciously even even by blocking one one nasal passage and breathing through the other and alternating that actually helps us get more into our uh, Parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system, reducing our anxiety, reducing our blood pressure, reducing our heart rate. Uh, and I might mention that all kinds of mindfulness practices are great at reducing uh, heart rate and creating heart rate variability even between the in-breath and the out-breath. Isn't that fascinating? And so you, you mentioned Notre Dame. So you are a Notre Dame grad. You got your yes, bachelor's uh, there. Yeah. 1972. All right, and you studied American Ameri studies. American studies, yes. Which actually gave me a, I think a, 
a, a sense of the how everything, at least in this case, American was connected. I mean, I, I think it really gave me a sense of, of the connectedness of all, all spheres of, of uh, people, all academic spheres. Uh, I learned journalism, you know, learned about, you know, U.S. history, learned about, uh, this, you know, sociology of the U.S., uh, geography, uh, the great writers, you know, the many, many great writers uh, throughout the history and that had connection to different aspects of American history, wh whether it was, uh, you know, the development and, and real reality of, of uh, slavery or even the, uh, the movement where people kind of went back to the ground, to the, to the land and lived on communes. I mean, that whole, there all these different aspects of America and seeing, being able to see the connectedness of these things, I think made it a great major for really coming out into the world and seeing, you know, there really aren't any silos. There really, I mean, it's, it makes it easier for us in life to be able to kind of compartmentalize everything, but everything is so connected and really complex that uh, it's, it's challenging and exciting uh, to, to really recognize that uh, you can have that perspective and see possibilities and relationships that perhaps some other academic experience would not have done for me. Hmm, lovely. And, and you got your uh, master's degree from Ball State. I did. In, uh, what year was that? Uh, I think it was between 78 and 80, if I remember right. And, and I honestly, I, I wish there were more programs like what I was able to benefit from. There was a program back then called the Law Enforcement Education Program, which bought, you know, one of the things it did, I believe, was bought equipment for local police departments, but it also said if you were working in, in public safety and you put in a certain amount of time, uh, the costs of education, the loans you were given would be forgiven. And so other than paying for my books, after a, a waiting period of you know putting in the acquired time, uh, the LEAP program basically paid for my master's degree, which opened up additional doors, including being able to teach some at Ball State. So uh, yeah, I, it was, a, it was a, a great opportunity to get to get that master's degree at that time, uh, had some great professors in graduate school, just like I had undergrad, and uh, just life-changing experiences that are brought about by education, and sometimes it's serendipitous timing of things, too. Give me a, a very brief um, sense of your your career path. You, you, you're uh, a journalist for a short while. Very short while. And then um, you went on to work in, in the justice system correct needed, ever, needed, ever needed a job had a car payment so yep. I dropped my camera and my uh, my reporter's book and took a job at Indiana State Prison as a counselor uh, a great deal of optimism and probably naivete I jumped right into corrections and uh, yeah it was quite an experience uh, it was during a time when there had just been an upheaval is that what you well uh, actually there was an upheaval while I was there although it didn't make the uh, history books because nobody died. But there was a, a Labor Day riot at Indiana State Prison, Labor Day weekend of 1973. Uh, and that was about seven months into my working there. Wow. However, the, correct, <laughs> the correctional officers went on strike. Okay. And people like me, civilians, were basically thrust into a role of being what they then frequently referred to as guards, which by the way, I reject that term because I think it fails to to honor the professionalism, and uh, it's one of my pet peeves that people should be regarded for what they do and what they really are and not hang some, what I think almost a pejorative term that's easy for the press. I do not like the word guard, but I worked with many correctional officers uh, and they've been coming increasing prof increasingly professional over the years. Uh, and it's just been, it was just something where coming into prison at that time, a prison, any prison, but particularly a maximum security prison. Uh, it, it was a very interesting time for a lot of reasons. Uh, I was there, for instance, when the first group of women actually were allowed to come behind the walls of the state prison. And it was a group of graduates from the Fort Wayne Police Academy. And uh, you can imagine the kind of, you know, that kind of created some, you know, what's going on here? You know, things are changing. Do, uh, how can we do this? How can we let women? and as you well know, uh, I don't know what the percentage is, but today correctional programs, facilities, and departments couldn't function without women and their skills and their leadership and their 
their skill sets they bring to, to service and to interacting with other people. Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing that as part of your journey. I'm curious now if you could share with us a little bit of this is your, your educational background, your, your career background, um, the difficult time that you went through um, in, in 08. And then what happened between then and you started uh, mindfulness training in was it 17, 18? Well, probably earlier than that in okay. terms of in terms of uh, well your own practice, I, right? Right. I mean, I started my own practice. I don't even really remember what the catalyst was because after the Dr. O'Brien experience, you know, some of that stuff that helped me. I think mindfulness and the breathing. Uh, I mean, I still had the you know the tool of alternate. Uh, alternate nostril breathing and it was a helpful tool but in terms of actual translating that into a mindfulness practice I don't even remember quite what the catalyst was but it probably happened around 2010 and uh, as frequently happens somebody that uh, that had worked with me uh, that actually was a volunteer in the jail introduced me to a woman who was probably my first mentor in mindfulness her name was Barbara George and she had been a professional airline personnel person she uh, trained as a social worker, and she came in and did some of the best work I saw, really, when I was in jail. I'm not, I'm not minimizing what anybody else does, but when you have young women under the age of 18 in an adult jail, they have more difficult circumstances than virtually anybody else in the jail to survive the experience of incarceration, and that's not criticizing any of the staff or anything else. It's just the reality, the kind of limits you have to place on their movement and their interactions with other people to keep them safe and to, and to meet the requirements of, of, of uh, accreditation standards and law. So Barbara came in and uh, practiced mindfulness with these two young ladies. And I can tell you that it was the highlight of their week. And so that just was one of the first situations in a correctional setting that really made me see how powerful the mindfulness was. And that was uh, around 2010, 2011. But the real, the, the real uh, benefit, one of the real benefits of, of working with Barb and meeting Barb, besides observing her in, you know, in the real world of, of facilitating mindfulness, was that she introduced me to the world of, of Fleet Mall, uh, who's the originator of the Prison Mindfulness Institute, as well as the Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety, and the Engage Mindfulness Institute, of which I was, you know, from which I was recently certified. Uh, and so understanding what what Fleet had done and what other kind of programs that, that the uh, center and the associated uh, not-for-profits were doing really uh, inspired me. And uh, I actually took a, uh, I guess it was a free summit basically that, that Fleet Mall taught uh, in 2016 in May. And uh, I learned this practice called safe, resourced, and connected, uh, which I then began to practice. The following Sunday, I was practicing that uh, and recognized that something wasn't quite right with my body, so I, I sat down and uh, decided, well, if I just practice this, this new uh, meditation technique, then, you know, it might calm me down. So then when I was, one of the phrases of safe, resourced, and connected is, I am safe followed by another set of phrases, I am resourced, and then the last one is I am connected. I didn't even get through the I am safe without getting really feedback from my own body that no, you're not safe. So I took an aspirin and drove to the bed check and uh, <laughs> they piled me in an ambulance. I went to St. Vincent's and four days later I had a quad bypass, so. Uh, Were you in the middle of a heart attack or what was that uh, I, I was having a heart attack, yes, and, uh, and being diabetic, which I've been, I was diagnosed in 2005, and honestly, I'm not sure, but what that diagnosis didn't come about because of work stress, I don't know. Uh, but sometimes when you have diabetes or certain illnesses, it, does, it harms your ability to kind of read symptoms in your body of what's going on. So I kind of credit, not kind of, I really do credit the practice of mindfulness that was going on in that very week to help me be in tune with what was going on and to respond to the symptoms and to get the work I, help I needed because uh, the surgeon told my wife Debbie that uh, you know this could have been bad if he hadn't come in and had the t had the tests and, and uh, had the surgery. 
and what were you feeling? Yeah. Well, it was it was a pressure across the lower rib cage and up the left side across the heart. Uh, and it was fairly pronounced, but I still don't know. I, I still wasn't sure, and I don't know that I would have picked up on it if it hadn't been for the for the mindfulness practice that I had been doing with Fleet Mall all that week, you know, as part of the summit. And uh, so that really, the, you know, going through that experience and, and the recovery uh, really had, gave me time to think about what other people that are doing the work of public safety, uh, you know, police, fire, uh, corrections officials, uh, corrections workers at all levels, are going through in terms of their life stress and their, honestly, not only quality of life, but length of life in many cases. People, people working in these fields uh, tend to have shorter lifespans because of the uh, unmitigated uh, stress that they really don't have the skills necessarily uh, to cope with in ways that are going to support their long-term health and longevity. Robert, I would love for you to share with me the definition of mindfulness in your own terms. Well, yes, I mean, it's, it's really about, it comes down to attention training, paying attention in a particular way, as Dr. Kabat-Zinn, who I know you're a fan of, talks about, in a particular way, on purpose, that is with intention, uh, it, it, in the present moment, and without judgment, which is hard, you know, we're so judgmental of ourselves and judgmental of others, and that's kind of what we do, but, uh, and then Dr. Amishi Jha talks about it just being a, uh, an attention skill that is essential is an essential cognitive tool. So I think sometimes we don't realize that essentially what mindfulness connects to cognitive behavioral kinds of approaches to life. It changes your behavior, uh, changes your thinking. I mean, a lot of that's been translated into, I think we, you mentioned earlier when we were off camera, uh, into treatments for addiction recovery, uh, like uh, dialectical behavioral therapy. There's other treatments out there that deal with addiction that are, are very much mindfulness-based. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I, I just had to comment and say, um, as you, you talk about um, attempting to have no judgment or as much as we can, because I know that that is so hard, um, I, I see that as a way to reduce the suffering. I mean, that's also that pivotal point you talked about, you know, the rumination or the worrying about the future, but even the judgment, I think, is another part of that. A absolutely. Of yes. That suffering. So... Um, that is definitely um, a skill that takes some development, but um, it is a beautiful thing. The more you practice sitting in a moment and saying, I don't have to judge it. I can just sit here and I can just be here and it can just be what it is. You know, that whole saying, it is what it is. There's a lot of <laughs> value actually to it and just letting it be as it is. Um, I'm wondering if you could share with me a little bit about your mindfulness routine, maybe even your morning routine. I know that that's kind of a hot topic. Well, you know, I, I think there's such thing as the ideal morning, the ideal day. It's, you know, things don't always go that way. Uh, so share with me that and then share with yeah, me okay, the sure, sure. plan B, mindfulness. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, th the ideal day to me would be really to get up and before I do virtually anything else would be to do at least 15 minutes, maybe 30 minutes of, of, of mindfulness. Usually mindfulness of breathing uh, and mindfulness of body in, in sort of in combination. Uh, but also allowing time for other practices that feel right in the moment. Uh, is this in a chair? Are you on a cushion? Or does it depend on uh, the you day? Know, I, I usually practice in a chair. I, I, of course, I've been trying to do more yoga, which might help me with my ability to be more limber. But I'm not really good at the cross-legged stuff on the floor. And part of that is just I'm not, you know, not very limber, so that would be an aspiration perhaps that someday I could actually uh, practice sitting cross-legged on the floor and, uh, and really to absorb more of the yoga practice into my daily routine or at least into my regular routine. I, I think that's something that I only learned in the last uh, probably six months, that the value, if not the almost imperative, that mindful movement of some sort and I, I don't mean riding a recumbent bike, although that's great, you know, get your heart rate up. But actually, you know, mindful walking, Tai Chi, Qigong, yoga, I mean, all these different mindful movement practices uh, are really about mindfulness taken into the body and taken into motion, which 
we also know that the motion and the movement is very important to us regulating our, our uh, vagus nerve system, which is a great big long brain that, you know, I don't have time to discuss that here, but it runs all the way from your brain stem all the way down to your lower extremities. So uh, movement is very important to regulating uh, our entire uh, autonomic nervous system. And I didn't come, but didn't come to really realize the importance of that really until the last six months, honestly kind of a blank spot, but really the doing the mindfulness, finding a time that works for you is, is really important, and not only not kicking yourself if you only get five minutes in or uh, if you have uh, missed it all together today. I mean, we know that up to 12 minutes a day, five days a week for four weeks, is, as, as with your course at the Chaos Antidote, Four to six weeks is plenty of time to develop a, a very helpful practice that research will show, and, you sh and you'll also feel the positive effects of. Tell me how mindfulness has impacted your life. Well, you know, I think I already mentioned one occasion where it might well have saved my life, uh, and I don't know that it saved my physical life. However, it may have saved my, my marriage and my job in, in 2013. Uh, which fortunately I had started practicing mindfulness by then. 2013 was a, is a poster child kind of example of the help, how helpful it was because in that year I had been asked by Sheriff Layton, who was then Sheriff of Marion County, to start a new program for women on the fifth floor of the old city county building. Now I wasn't responsible for security or any of the kind of, you know, anything else, but I was responsible for the programs. And there was gonna be 110 beds with medium security women. I had no budget. Uh, and I had from the fall to the spring about five months to put it all together. And so, you know, that was a mindfulness program. A mi well, an entire set of programs addiction, reentry pre preparation, uh, anything that might adhere to people's physical health, whether it's HIV prevention, whatever, whatever the programs needed to be. And really, I did incorporate some mindfulness, but primarily it was into the orientation session. I, I gave people uh, a little brief orientation into it and some information sheets about it, but never really got it as fully incorporated as I would like to. Uh, so basically the benefit of the mindfulness at that time was to me, the same March that Hope Hall, later named Hope Hall, the uh, facility for women with the programs that I developed with a lot of support, of course, uh, the same month, a not-for-profit that I was the president of, a child advocacy, child services organization that had existed for 40 years went belly up and the attorneys are telling me you know we cannot do business one day longer we cannot pay our bills and so well you know got on the phone one day in March and laid off 30 some child care workers and therapists and people from all over the state during a phone call and all the other activities are winding that down and of course I had only been married to to uh, my wife Debbie at that point for less than three years, so it's like, you know, if it hadn't been for mindfulness practice, my relationship with work, uh, my own health, and I'm afraid my relationship with my wife might have might have really uh, been impacted in very uh, less than satisfactory ways. So uh, that's the most direct example I can think of is uh, other than when I actually had the uh, little heart episode a few years later. That's lovely. Um, I'm wondering if you would be willing to share with us um, any tips for beginners. Oh, sure. Mindfulness. I do. I do think that there's a tendency for people to hear it's a good idea, pitch in with high expectations, and just decide they can't do it. Uh, Going from zero to sixty minutes a day. <laughs> right, and so I, I I recommend starting with short periods. Uh, don't don't expect to go for longer than maybe three minutes, five minutes, whatever. Uh, realize that your mind's going to wander. It's what it's what our chaotic, cognitive thinking human minds do. I mean, it just is going to happen. And then I talked about earlier picking the best time for me. I think morning is, but it might be different for somebody else. Pick the best time to practice that works for you, and sort of decide oh, what, what kind of habit or what kind of event are you going to tie it to? You know, maybe, maybe you do your meditation immediately after walking the dog in the morning or, or while you're brewing your tea or your coffee. Uh, consider logging your practices, not, not to compare yourself to anybody else, but to compare yourself to yourself. Keep a record. You know, maybe I, 
you could feel good about, hey, I got six times in this week, and last week I only got four. Uh, logging the practices and the types of practices not only encourages you to do more practices, but allows you to reflect back on your progress, which generally can make you feel good about yourself or maybe motivate yourself to do better. Uh, so five times a week we know from, from the research is, is enough to really develop and sustain a very helpful practice. Uh, be patient with yourself and be patient with the practice. You're not going to see benefits immediately. I think most people are going to see benefits in a matter of weeks. Uh, and then try different types of practices, whether it's mindful movement, whether it's body scan, whether it's some kind of gratitude exercise, which of course uh, Glowy is, and I think it's a great exercise. Uh, there's so many different variations on different practices, and, and the more you try, uh, the more you're going to find what, what meets a need in the moment or you know, perhaps something new that kind of helps keep your practice fresh. Uh, and then find others to practice with. Uh, search online for uh, groups or people that have like interests. Uh, if somebody had, uh, I, I suppose if somebody Googled mindfulness in Indianapolis right now, your academy might well come up. I, I haven't actually done that. But you know, find like-minded people, people that are capable of assisting you and supporting you in your, in your journey. And also uh, Google any kind of practice that you're interested in or you heard about because there's all kinds of free, great stuff out there. Uh, I mentioned Dr. Fleet Mall. I mean, there's wonderful stuff out there on YouTube and other places that uh, you can learn practices from, uh, do actual practices with his, with his guidance. So there's just a, a lot of resources out there that we need to learn to, to access. And then there's a real concern I think some people have that, you know, if I'm spending 15 minutes, you know, away from my kids or not doing this or that or not, that I'm being selfish. And really, it is basic self-care. There's nothing at all selfish about mindfulness practice. It is self-care. And it's, it's essential self-care when you, when you have a stressful life and busy to-do lists and you know, all kinds of stress, which depending on your profession or what's going on in your life in the moment might be, uh, might be critical to your well-being and, and uh, your future and your families, you know, people you care about. Uh, and then research. Research shows that self-awareness uh, will result from practice. And, and just having that self-awareness means you can catch yourself when you're overwhelmed and you can do the, uh, a practice. You, know, you can become aware and just take a minute, like, like the stop practice I mentioned earlier that uh, Rhonda McGee has done a nice job of promoting. Uh, just giving yourself a moment to recognize what's going on uh, which only may only come from practice. I mean, you're not going to all of a sudden become mindful in most cases unless you have the practice. You're going to benefit from the practice. Uh, and, and if you f do these practices, you're going to find yourself showing up in life with compassion for yourself and for others. And it, that's, I, mean, I think earlier we were talking off camera about uh, empowerment. I mean, there's really a very empowering thing to know that you have the skills to be helpful to yourself, but also be a better, whatever, mother, public relation person, lawyer, I mean, whatever you're doing, it will give you, you know, better understanding of how you can cope with life's challenges and do so in a way that's very forward-looking, uh, productive, without that hindsight of regret and without that fear of what's going to happen tomorrow. Lovely. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I was wondering if you could share with us one of your favorite mindfulness practices and maybe take a minute or two and lead us through sure, that. Sure, would love to do that. You know, it's, it was hard to pick a practice, actually. Uh, however, uh, the practice I think is probably the most uh, versatile, really, is straw breathing. Uh, and so a lot of this practice is simply, first of all, getting yourself in a comfortable position and beginning to just notice your breath, the various places in your body that it, that it shows up. Perhaps, you know, at the nostrils, you know, where the air might be cool when you breathe in. Your parted lips might be warmer when you breathe out. Just getting in touch with your breath, not trying to do any particular cadence or regulating in any way, just noticing it. And just allowing that to happen 
for just a few breaths. And now that you found yourself in touch with your breath, setting a goal or an aspiration to purposefully and intentionally extend the length of your breath on the out breath by a few beats. So perhaps if you are breathing in for a count of three, you would breathe out for a count of six. And when you breathe out, you breathe out through pursed lips. So that's where the name straw breathing comes from. It's as if you were breathing through a straw. So it goes something like this. perhaps carrying that on for a couple of three breaths on your own before we conclude. And thank you for that opportunity, Amy. Thank you for sharing that with us. That was lovely. I'd like to hop into a bit of a discussion around your work and um, your mindfulness efforts um, because it's fascinating. Um, I think it's a beautiful journey that you've had working in corrections and now giving back, giving of your life source to help folks who are the first line, you know, for, for society. Um, so thank you for your work first off. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's a beautiful generosity that you and that you're giving to us. So thank you for that. I, I would love to hear about your work in the justice system, what that looks like now. Well, when I learned uh, about Fleet Mall and the work he does with the Prison Mindfulness Institute, uh, I signed up for a course teaching mindfulness to incarcerated people. It's called Path of Freedom. It's a wonderful curriculum being used in all kinds of locations all over the world, although it did suffer some setbacks during COVID, of course. But it, it teaches mindfulness-based emotional intelligence. It's really what a lot, of, a lot of mindfulness practices are about. It teaches it to residents of correctional facilities in ways that they can grab pieces to help reflect on the, the trauma that they have experienced about their own unaccountability to, to others. Uh, their tendency to perhaps uh, get involved in, in too much drama and just maybe even sometimes stick their nose in other people's business, uh, misusing power. Uh, a lot of that springs from, from their own uh, early experience, but the, the course does a wonderful job, Path of Freedom. I took that course and then John McAdams, who is the lead trainer for CMPS, asked me for a little bit more about my resume because he understood from just hearing from me from during the course that what work I did. and. Uh, so, you know, he, uh, Fleet and John came to Indianapolis and we had some meetings with people and we connected with law enforcement and we talked about, hey, COVID is a horrific time for everybody, but what if you're trying to respond to everybody else's needs as well as your family at home with the lack of knowledge or understanding about what was going to happen during, the, during COVID or how long it was going to last? So we set aside, we set side time on Wednesday night with the support of a lot of law enforcement leaders. I mean, we, we, we could not have done it without the support from the leadership of the Indiana Law Enforcement uh, Academy, without the Sheriff's Association, without the support from IMPD, the Sheriff's Office, a lot of other people to get the call going. And uh, we just kept rolling. I mean, uh, Chief Doug Abernathy from the uh, Indianapolis Police Department, their wellness guy, was one of our guests and, and a great, has become a great friend. It's just so helpful to people whether they're working in support of criminal justice people, like a lot of uh, people who do crisis intervention or mental health support for first responders, just to have that, build that community of people who, who understand the importance of the skills and can provide some 
empathy and support for each other. I, as, as we all know, there's been a lot of difficult things that have happened in society that have made it even more difficult for, for people working in corrections, people working in law enforcement, uh, to really get the respect they deserve, the understanding they deserve. Uh, I, I was thinking even today, there was, uh, in Indianapolis, there was police needing to respond to a dog bite, a child that was seriously injured. Everybody from the coroner's office, the, the police department, the fire department, EMS, whoever responds to those kind of situations is really impacted by trauma, primary or secondary. You, you, maybe you hear about that stuff, but trauma can be mitigated. Trauma is anything that overwhelms our capacity to, to cope with life's events, and mindfulness, well-delivered, can really help with mitigating the effects of trauma and helping people understand what they've gone through and give them the skill set to really be present and uh, to have empathy and compassion even in the most difficult of circumstances. And to be situationally aware because it, it, in, in almost all training probably in terms of police and fire, public safety, they talk about you know police officers and other people entering a difficult situation and being aware of the situation. There is nothing better for situational awareness than mindfulness. You know, there are many people who go to search, to serve a warrant or whatever that immediately, it's like before we go in, you know, straw breathing or, or some other breathing practice, you know, four, seven, eight or uh, box breathing or some other practice. They do that because they know that otherwise the adrenaline's gonna get pumping and they're not gonna be using their best judgment for whatever they see on the other side of that door when, you know, or whatever when they knock on the door for the warrant or whatever's going on. So just giving officers that awareness, and even the state police in Indiana now are training new recruits in mindfulness, which they were not doing three years ago. So the, the actual concrete evidence of the benefit and, and the expansion of, of mindfulness in public safety is, is really there. And I credit Troy Torrance of the Indiana State Police, their health manager, for his leadership on that. But it's, there's a lot of great things going on in uh, the Marion County Sheriff's Office. I was honored to be part of their training. Uh, that mindfulness-based wellness and resiliency uh, curriculum is great, and I am even a, a more firm believer in it, having been able to, to attend and facilitate those sessions. Uh, it's a great curriculum, and, and everybody could benefit from the elements of it. Uh, but it's particularly a stressful environment that is, that is life-threatening life for many people. I mean, I've heard, it been, I've heard it said that sometimes correctional officers and police officers, they're their lifespan might be less than 60 years old on average, and, and that's tragic. Uh, maybe that's why they let them retire, in many cases, after 20 years, but uh, you know, people should have a long, a long, long retirement with, with, with happy, happiness and health and opportunities to travel and that kind of thing, and that doesn't happen in an awful lot of cases. I've lost a lot of friends either before they made retirement or within the first few years after, so it's, it's uh, very vital work, I think. That's exactly what I was going to say. Such important work. I'm wondering if you could share with us an example of um, a moment when um, the work that you're doing through mindfulness facilitation with first responders, when that really came through for someone. You saw the light come on or uh, a really positive uh, result came out of a situation because someone utilized the skills that you had helped train them on. Well, you know, the what comes to mind most immediately uh, about that is, as I mentioned, I was privileged to be able to be a facilitator trainer for the Marion County Sheriff's Office as they implemented their new peer support program. Uh, and it was, it was an opportunity to be, to be in small groups teaching and facilitating mindfulness with people who had had no prior introduction before this 10-week course began. Some of these people are people who had were veterans, not just of the, of the sheriff's office, but of, of the armed forces, and had clearly been impacted by their service and service overseas in, in, in wartime settings and that sort of thing. Uh, and so to hear from them, again, as we said, we're not sharing names at all, but to hear from them the benefit in understanding what was happening to them and what skills they could use to mitigate the impacts uh, it was, I mean, very satisfying to hear that and very gratifying to know, uh, which also reinforced my desire to say, well, 
if it can mean this much to somebody who's 10 years into their career and all this, what if we could get this training in the academy for the sheriff's office? And, you know, it's get it to people earlier where they can use it. There were also people in this class who said, you know, I took this training, communication skills training, which was part of the MBWR, uh, and I used it with my wife and, and my kids, and it, it works, you know. So it's really gratifying to hear that just in the, just in the space of, of the training program where we had two hours. Part of the work is you do two hours for eight, for, yeah, eight weeks, two hours of communities of practice, practicing and learning different skills. And then on the front end and back end, there's a full eight-hour day of training. So over the period of time, seeing people's confidence, seeing people's aha moments, people, seeing people actually use those skills in their personal and professional life, and getting feedback on that, it, it was amazing. Robert, I'm wondering if you could share with us maybe a couple of books that have impacted your practice in a positive way. Glad to do so. The, uh, this book just came out, I think, in like 2019, and it's the book Radical Responsibility by Dr. Fleet Mall, who I mentioned earlier is uh, one of my longstanding mentors and, and uh, teachers. And a person whose mantra basically is practice, practice, practice. I mean, he, he has really driven that home with me and really helped me. But this book also, if you don't happen to have the benefit of, of uh, a practice already or you want to be inspired or you just want to make your practice better and deeper, Radical Responsibility, the subtitle, How to Move Beyond Blame, Fearlessly Live Your Highest Purpose, and Become an Unstoppable Force for Good. Pretty lofty aspiration, but this... This book has gotten great reviews. It's been personally helpful to me. And I'm one of those people that uses sticky notes, so you can see. I see that. It's, there, it's there are a lot of sticky notes. <laughs> for those who are just listening, well used lots and of well sticky worn. notes. So I do rec recommend this book. And he also wrote another book, which is really helpful for, on the research side, called Resilient CO. And it's uh, a book that is really about the research and how it applies to, to benefit both correctional officers and police officers and others. That's the CO, correctional the, officer. The I resilient CO, correctional officer, right. Okay. Both great books. Thank you for sharing those. As we head here to the close, Robert, I'm wondering if you would humor me or entertain me, if you will, to practice the Glowy Daily Reflection practice. It is uh, a practice that I developed and placed in my book, The Chaos Antidote, a fable about mindfulness, as well as the accompanying handbook uh, or uh, six-week guide, I should say. And I'm wondering if we could practice that together here if I'd I could lead you through that I'd be honored wonderful um, so for those of you who don't know uh, the glowy daily reflection practice is an acronym and the G stands for grateful so we talk through the things that we are grateful for in that moment really just helps us connect with ourselves and center ourselves before the day especially with the, the gratefulness up there at the beginning uh, L is for lift up the things in our lives that need resources that's the best way I like to say that part is we need resources um, and or maybe someone else who needs resources or is struggling the O stands for observe and that is the inside and noticing what's going on inside and around it could be a, a body sensation it could be uh, a thought that's going through your mind all kinds of things you could notice that you know the light from the studio here is uh, making a blurry spot in your glasses <laughs> whatever it might be um, the W is for wholesome intention and um, I like to define this I'm sure other folks have different definitions for it but I like to say the wholesome intention is how uh, I personally like to show up in a day um, do I want to be kind do I want to be present do I want to um, can't even be kind of what I want to accomplish in that day I you know my wholesome intention is to complete the first chapter of my book <laughs> whatever it might be for that for that day or that moment and the why is my favorite um, the why stands for you are so it is a positive affirmation uh, for yourself before you head out in the day to remind yourself just how awesome you truly are and so I'll start here at the beginning to say would you tell us what you're grateful for the G absolutely I'm grateful for my family with whom I celebrated Independence Day yesterday for my teachers and mentors in the practice of mindfulness, and for scores of mindfulness practitioners and colleagues with whom I have the good fortune to practice and learn from. Beautiful, lots to be thankful for. And what about the L, the lift up? I lift up all those who suffer from violence and all public safety and health workers who work 
to prevent and respond to incidents of violence, risking their own safety and mental health in the process. Beautiful. The O for observe. This, of course, this was written this morning, which I, I think is a wonderful daily practice. So I will say it's something you do every day. It could be different every day. I observe some queasiness in my stomach as I anticipate my first podcast interview. Well, thank you for pushing through and for <laughs> noticing that. Hopefully that even helps helps you be in touch with yourself so you recognize that. That's beautiful. Um, your wholesome intention, your W. My wholesome intention is to live and share a mindful life with consideration and compassion for myself and others. That's a great recognition right there. <laughs> I think you have drafted it. And here for the finale, the why, you are. Tell us, brag on yourself a little bit, Robert. <laughs> Well, thank you. A capable and loving spouse, father, grandfather, friend, and neighbor who has learned not to believe everything I think. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. So as we head here towards the end, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about how folks could learn about the Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety and the great work that you all are doing. The Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety is, is a not-for-profit that has been training for several years now, correctional officers and police officers in, I think, about six or eight states now and uh, the province of Ontario and Canada. And uh, by, by the way, in the process of this, they also are conducting research to prove the efficacy and helpfulness of these, of these various uh, uh, curriculum and, and skills as they're taught to police officers, first responders, uh, every, just anybody in the whole field of public safety. So. This tells you, it has wonderful definitions of mindfulness. It has information on their website, which is mindfulpublicsafety.org. Mindfulpublicsafety.org. And, I mean, I honestly, I looked at it a little more closely today because of our, our plan for this podcast, and it's got more stuff than I even realized, honestly. I mean, I hate to admit that, that I've been working with them for years now, but uh, it has wonderful definitions. It has the research behind it, definitions of all the basic stuff, you know, like we talked about what is mindfulness, the several definitions and variations on that. Wonderful resources if you want audio or video recordings of a whole array of practices, many of which we didn't even touch on today. Uh, just go to that website. There's there audio or video, whichever you prefer. You know, some might work on your phone. Are, are these free? or They are absolutely free. free. Uh, the website is free. They, they are free. No, no cost to anybody. You don't, you don't have to be a first responder or a police officer or a corrections officer to access these resources. They're there for everybody. And so uh, feel welcome to go to that website and get all these resources and ideas. And you also might get names of practices that are going to leave you scratching your head. Well, you know, check it out on that website or if, if you prefer some other uh, venue. Once you write down the name of the practice, you might go on and Google it on, you know, YouTube or whatever else. But the are there are tremendous resources there that I I, uh, I I think I've in some respects only beginning to scratch the surface myself because I kind of take that stuff for granted but it is free and uh, I would encourage people to go to it uh, any donations uh, by the way it's not easy to find their donate button but if you go under the about the Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety there's a section on staff who are amazing people and then below that there's a donate button so Anything that you would donate to the Center for Mindfulness and Public Safety would go to cover costs of, of mindfulness training for people in public safety. So. Beautiful. Well, Robert, it has been a true pleasure, and I thank you so I've, much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for your work. And um, I will sign us off here. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here. From my heart to yours, may you live with ease. This is Amy Morgan, host of the Mindfulness Academy podcast, signing off.